You traveled the globe, closely studying how people honor the dead, especially in today's crowded and increasingly digital world. What you found was neither depressing or macabre, but rather an uplifting series of deep connections and vivid lessons about the living. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. When people depict uh, cemeteries and memorial practices in a place like New Orleans is they talk about the Second Line Parade, which is an incredibly beautiful public claiming of space. There's music, there's dancing, there's excitement, there's joy being shared about the person who's passed away. It's a public parade. And it's a pretty profound space, grieving space. But it's the second line because it comes after the first line which is the procession into the cemetery, which is mournful and sorrowful, and there are tears, and it is not joyous. And so I think that being able to give joy where it does exist and not deny it, but also recognizing that there is, of course, somber, the sense of solemnity in every grieving process. It's a, it's a mixed bag of emotions, and to be able to acknowledge that that happens worldwide and across cultures is, is important for understanding our kind of shared humanity. This week, learning the complexity of history through the lens of cemeteries, making space to create deep conversations, and the overwhelming kindness of strangers. Join us on an All Saints Day journey from Minneapolis, Minnesota to London and Singapore and honoring the living by honoring those no longer with us. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Katie Thornton, and I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've just returned from a Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellowship. I was in England and Singapore. And what I do is I study cemeteries and death spaces and death rituals. And specifically, I look at how they're changing. So especially in a world that's increasingly urbanized and transient, our cities are multicultural and we're so digitally connected. We have so many ways to digitally document and preserve the memories of the dead. So I asked how and where do we remember the dead in that context? have a personal interest in cemeteries and I have sort of an academic interest in cemeteries. My mom and I both at the same time came into pretty serious illness and I was kind of going through my days grappling with this reality 
of mortality and it was kind of like a lens through which I viewed everything in my daily life. But I found it really isolating because I would go and take walks around Minneapolis, my home city where I've grown up my whole life. And I didn't see this thing that was shaping my everyday experience reflected back in the built environment in any way. You know, it's like humans need to eat. We see grocery stores or we see gardens. We see our needs and our realities reflected back in our physical space. But then there was this reality of death that felt impending to me in many ways. And I didn't see it reflected back at me. And so I felt really alone, even though I knew it wasn't a solitary experience. I didn't feel like I knew how to find community or where to go. The only spot that I saw this reality of mortality reflected back at me was in the cemetery. And I found it really comforting. So I started to take an interest in those spaces for personal reasons. I studied history in college, but I really didn't like history when I was in middle school and high school. I thought that it was oversimplified, thought that it was whitewashed, didn't look like the city and the population that I knew when we learned about something like our local history. So I never connected to history, never felt very relevant or engaging to me. But as I learned more and more about local history in my home city, I started to see that it was much more engaging, much more interesting, and much more diverse and representative than we ever learned. And so I wanted to kind of tease out, like, what is this disconnect that history can be so fascinating and so meaningful, but the way we learn about it is often so dry and so irrelevant. And I thought that cemetery spaces were interesting sites to kind of tease out a more complex history and a more interesting history. They're certainly not without exclusions. Like absolutely people have been prohibited from cemetery landscapes implicitly or explicitly due to race, religion, inability to pay, any number of things. So they're certainly not without exclusions. But within that space, you can begin to critically look at, okay, who is represented here and how? Who is not represented here? Why not? And it's just a sort of artistically and ecologically beautiful place to look at the complexity of history. So with my Fulbright, the thing that I really appreciate about the Fulbright is that it gave me the opportunity to do this research. I hesitate to call it research because it was really based in conversation. It gave me the time to have those conversations in a meaningful way, in a way that felt honest, and to talk with people for long enough that I was certain that I could relay their stories in a way that felt honest to them as well. I set out to learn what a cemetery looks like and where we go and how we remember the dead in this changing world, this urbanized, digitally documented, multicultural world. And I did that through doing some archival research and learning about the history of cemeteries in the places that I was going, but also primarily just through conversation. People let me in on some of their most intimate, personal spaces, brought me into new memorial landscapes, let me in on new rituals. 
And the reason that I chose England and Singapore is because they offer, to me, they offer a sort of glimpse into the future of where I think a lot of our world is going. So they're both small islands, so they're inherently land limited and very urbanized. They're both very multicultural and also really digitally documented. And so they're kind of ahead of the curve of where the U.S. might be pretty soon. And those realities have already had pretty profound impact on their memorial spaces. They're changing very rapidly. When I got on the plane to start the project, that was definitely not the beginning of the project. So much work has to be done ahead of time. And something that I really value is the opportunity to research the hell out of where you're going, the topics that you're interested in learning about, thinking that you have a thorough understanding of it, and then getting to your destination, having conversations, and just being prepared to have that completely go to hell in a handbasket because you recognize that you are not the expert in these spaces and that people are an expert of their own experiences and you're there to learn from them. So I love having a well-laid plan, being very well-informed in terms of my research, and then being completely surprised. Some of the things that surprised me the most are, one, how willing people were to speak with me and to bring me into really personal spaces. And something that I took away from this year was that death is a universal experience, but we don't really have space where we're encouraged to talk about it and be honest about it. And I found that if you give people space to have those conversations, a lot of them will be pretty eager to do so. In Singapore, two weeks into my time there, I had been in touch over email and over WhatsApp with somebody who a couple of people had recommended I talk to. He'd never met me before, but he immediately invited me to join him and his wife to visit a columbarium where they hold ashes of the deceased on his wife's mother's death anniversary. We've never met, and they were just willing to bring me along because these spaces are changing so rapidly that in places like Singapore, they're often at risk of going away. The practices are at risk of being lost. And so they were willing to bring me in because I expressed an interest, a genuine interest to learn from them and, and to document some of what was going on. things that was a big takeaway from my time in England was a perspective that I gained on the U.S. In the U.S. we have a really persistent and ubiquitous idea of ownership of property. In the U.K., in England, the majority of grave spaces are leased. No burial plots in London are owned at this point because they're just isn't enough land to guarantee that people have this space forever. And then also it makes burial space really prohibitively expensive if you're guaranteeing it supposedly forever. I know from working in cemeteries and in the funeral industry that nothing is forever anywhere. 
You cannot guarantee that. But in the U.S., I think we become so attached to this idea of private property and private ownership forever. And it's just not practical. It's not ecologically sustainable. It doesn't work when you have growing and changing populations. And I was really surprised that in the U.K. and in England, where I was doing my research, people were very understanding of that. And in Singapore, even more so, because there's such limited land. Burial in Singapore is only permitted for 15 years. And then if your religion allows, you have to be cremated after that time. And if your religion requires full body burial, then you have to actually consolidate and share a grave with seven other people after your 15 years in the ground. And it's not an easy thing to address. People aren't enthusiastic about this necessarily, but there's a lot of understanding because there's a kind of recognition, something that I heard repeatedly reiterated in England was, you know, we want to be sure that we're allocating space for the dead. We want to be sure that we're allocating space for cultural practice for the dead. But we also have a housing shortage for the living. And when we think about how we're going to allocate space, we need to take into account the needs of the living. And, you know, ultimately, the space to do death rituals and to honor the dead is also a need for the living. But how much space is going to be allocated to the physical remains of the dead, you know, rather than for the living. I think cemeteries have almost never been places for the dead. Like how we honor the dead is for the living. For, for those who believe in a certain type of afterlife, there is a sense of making sure that needs are met, especially within Singapore. I saw this often, you know, offerings are made so that needs are met in the afterlife. But so much of grief and memorialization and going to a physical space memorializes for the living. It's to meet the needs of the living. And you look at this, you see this in cemetery imagery all the time. Like there's a photo that I took of a grave in a suburban London cemetery where there is a, a statue of a woman just draped over the tombstone, just clearly despondent. And that's really addressing... Like, what is this person leaving behind? The focus is on the mourners, on the bereaved. Being able to go to a physical space, it's, n it's not for the person who is no longer with us and is in the ground. It's to be able to find a way to tangibly connect with that loss and start to make sense of that loss. Sometimes that happens in a cemetery. Sometimes it happens by taking a detour and going by somebody's home on your way back from work, or increasingly it happens by visiting their Facebook page. There are many different ways that this takes place, but... Memorial practice does incorporate the needs of the dead in some cultures and some traditions, but so often it's a, it's a space that meets the needs of the living at a time of enormous stress. I think it's really easy for people to say, like, oh, the Victorian era cemeteries are beautiful. They have these beautiful monuments and they're public parks. But 
to just make that statement is to completely ignore the context in which they came up and who is represented there. It was absolutely a show of wealth. It was a space that was accessible by the wealthy, often by carriage, which, you know, it would cost more and take longer to take a carriage ride within London, for example, within Victorian era London, than to take a train to the cemetery 25 miles outside of the city that was where a lot of people were buried and their coffins were brought by train. And to be able to recognize that those spaces are beautiful as well, and they're incredibly, incredibly valuable to our historic record. Yeah, so for a cemetery that is like all flat markers, you can take a lawnmower over it. I don't necessarily think it is the most beautiful space. However, I do think having some sort of physical space to remember the dead is important. And if that feels relevant and meaningful, I think we need that space. I also think, once again, cemeteries are always contextual. And even if I don't necessarily think that that flat marker, manicured grass cemetery is particularly beautiful, I also think it tells us a lot about the living. It tells us a lot about our history. That style of cemetery emerged very much in like the west coast of the U.S. in the 1950s or so when values of efficiency were really important within U.S. culture. And basically it's like we want to be able to mow this. We want to be able to clear this. And so that to me is like maybe it's not the most aesthetically pleasing at first, but there's always more than meets the eye. And you can always use them as a way to not just understand the people who are buried there in their lives, but to understand the context in which these cemeteries emerged to me makes them all the more fascinating. So I don't think there is a, I don't think there's a bad cemetery. I think to be a foreigner doing such sensitive work takes a lot of humility and it takes a lot of willingness to be surprised. In Singapore, it's an English-speaking country, and I also have a background in, in Mandarin Chinese. The ethnic majority in Singapore is Chinese, and so this kind of enabled me to have conversations in a language that also felt comfortable in, in addition to English. I had a lot of really interesting interactions based on the fact that I could speak Chinese. At least once a week, I'd be like engaging in conversation in Chinese with somebody in like a food court, and somebody would be walking past somebody who was Chinese Singaporean, and they would just like stop dead in their tracks and then like backtrack and like throw a glance my way. And then they would like nod their head at me and be like, in Chinese, like, you speak Chinese? And I was just like, uh, yeah. And then I would continue the conversation and they would just watch and listen. And then oftentimes it would be like, your pronunciation's not bad. And they'd like walk away. And to me, it was kind of, it was a, a cool thing to be able to know that like, we had an inherently different relationship because I had made an effort. And I think that's especially important no matter what kind of conversations you're hoping to have. But if you are asking people and giving people an opportunity to be vulnerable, I think it's important to, to show some deference. 
Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellowship allows you to become friends with the people you're working with and like give that time that it takes to have those relationships be more than just an academic or interviewer, interviewee relationship. And so in that way, I felt that I was surrounded by friends at many times. My goal is to is to be a conduit for stories that people were willing to share with me throughout the year. I met a grave digger who had worked in an office, like gone to work in a suit for 10 years and then was like, you know what, I got to get out of this. And now he works in the cemetery and he loves his job. It's like the first job he's ever loved. And he told, he talked to me for a long time about how the cemetery is like the most beautiful place that you can go to work. to deny the fact that there is humor and awkwardness at the time of death just like robs everybody of our humanity. It robs the humanity of the person who's passed away. I mean, how often have you attended a funeral or visited a grave and just thought like, this is nothing like what this person was like? So some of my favorite things that I ever see are like really funny epitaphs or just memorials that feel accurate to people's experience. I think I expected to find that older people would feel a specific way, would want to be remembered in a certain way, and that younger people would want to be remembered in a different way. And that was like totally not the case. There was not correlation across generation. I had a conversation with a woman, a 71-year-old gardening volunteer in the cemetery in a cemetery in Bristol, England. She was very eagerly telling me about the new green burial plot that she had just purchased where she would go after she would die and she would become a part of the woodlands. She said, it doesn't matter if I drop here because I've got my plot there and they can just plunk me straight in. And she was just laughing about it and she loved going to the cemetery and she knew she was just going to be there forever sometime. And then she told me, you know, I don't bother if you don't come and stand by where I've been put in a hole people that love you, it won't take a headstone for them to remember you. And it was so poignant across um, so many generations. There was just such a variety of opinion. I had a similar experience producing a, a radio piece for National Public Radio about a family who worked with a local football club in London to have the ashes of their father placed beneath the field and how meaningful it was for them. And it was a really fun story to produce, which is something that a lot of people find surprising about the work is that it doesn't have to be somber all the time. And they were so happy with that piece as well that to me there is, there's no better, no better feedback than that. And that's why I do what I do. I did fall and 
split my chin open while I was in Singapore and somebody told me it was because I was studying on the yin too much, which is the side of life that has to do with death within the yin and the yang. <laughs> that was kind of funny. He said it a bit of as a bit of a joke, but it was like, okay, noted. Maybe I should be especially careful if I'm studying in this area. Also, something that I really loved about being in Singapore was how much there was a comfort with the idea that the dead were always with us. Somebody told me about a, a cemetery pavilion. After the rest of the cemetery was cleared for development, this one pavilion stood and remained. It was like the one remnant, physical remnant of the cemetery on the landscape after the cemetery had been cleared. And then residents in the housing that had gone up nearby after the cemetery was cleared called into the, the government that runs the housing and just said, like, we keep seeing shadows in this pavilion so the government was like okay we'll take it down and i was like do, do ghosts influence infrastructure often and he was like oh yeah of course like of course they do and to me it was like yeah obviously the dead are just like in some ways with us at all times and i just loved the familiarity and the comfort that people spoke with I was out in a cemetery in England. I was visiting a place where six years ago, some technologists did a bit of an experiment where they did augmented reality over headstones. And um, I met with these technologists and academics who wanted to try this project out as a way to say, like, what sort of digital interpretation can we do in these spaces to complicate history? And, you know, we're going to use actors in this instance, but in theory, people could pre-record their own. And then you don't interfere with the historic landscape, but you can scan over and learn more. It's a really interesting concept. And they did it as a sort of trial run in the cemetery with actors. And we went out six years later after it had been produced to view the augmented reality and some of them worked, but others of them totally didn't work. And it was only six years later, but they didn't work because augmented reality relies on a visual trigger. And you have to, the phone has to be able to recognize you know, that it knows this image. And so at one grave, we scanned over it and it couldn't pick it up because the grave had weathered so much over the course of six years. When we used a picture of the grave from six years ago, it picked it up right away. And so it just made me realize that once again, this concept of permanence and this concept of immortality doesn't exist in our physical memorials. It doesn't exist in our virtual memorials. And in the same way that you have to upkeep a physical graveyard, you have to upkeep virtual memorials too. I think I was uh, the beneficiary of extraordinary acts of kindness every day. It sits with me very heavily in a way because I feel like I don't know what I can possibly do to thank people. My hope and what I've found to be true thus far is that people find the work and the ways that I curate and present stories that they share with me, I hope that that can express my gratitude because I hope it's accurate and, and reflective and, and um, representative for them. And that's the feedback I've gotten thus far. And coming back to the US, one of the things that I'm so excited to do is to be a good host and to be generous in letting people into my life. Every time I was welcomed into somebody's home, 
felt so powerful to me. There was an instance where it was um, tomb sweeping day, which is a celebration in China and the Chinese diaspora where you go and you tend to the graves of the deceased. You make offerings. Traditionally, in a cemetery space, you would bring food uh, to the grave and you would share it with the ancestors, let them give time to enjoy it, give time to let them enjoy it. And then the whole family would have a feast at the graveside. And I think it's a really beautiful tradition. Increasingly in Singapore, there's only one cemetery that accepts burial because there isn't space. And so these traditions are changing a little bit. The food is brought to often where the ashes are stored. But then oftentimes the feast takes place at home. This holiday, Qingming, is one of the only times in the year that one of somebody who I met through my work, his entire extended family gets together. And he invited me along to visit the remains of their family members. And then he invited me back to his brother's house to enjoy this feast. And it was a feast that had been given first to the ancestors, and then we were able to enjoy it. And his mother told me how she spent hours and hours and hours preparing the tripe. And for me, that was just one of the most generous and kind moments um, in, my, in my whole year. absolutely inspired to be a better host and to be generous in sharing and also to continue asking questions of people because I got a lot of feedback that many people were grateful to have an opportunity to share about some of these things that we're not encouraged to talk about. But one of the things that I did not expect to take away for many reasons was specifically around grief and mourning. Um, so while I was in Singapore, my grandmother passed away, and it was a completely new grieving experience for me uh, for many reasons. One, I was not in a familiar place. I couldn't, I wasn't with her. I couldn't go see her. I couldn't go by her house and reflect. I couldn't go to the graveside. But while I was in Singapore, people were so generously sharing with me traditions that make sense to them. And one of the things, even before I had lost my grandmother, my last, grand, my last grandparent, I was really struck by this idea that people would just like go to the grave and pour someone a cup of coffee and be like, you like coffee? We're here. We're drinking coffee. You get one too. And I just loved that so much. And my grandma loved tea. And so being able to think creatively about like, well, maybe... I pour a cup of tea for her. And it felt at a distance, you know, being removed from, from my family and my home, really comforting. And I'm happy to have had an opportunity to, to see that. pretty comfortable being the only person in the cemetery because it's something I can relate to, it's something I'm familiar with. When I'm overseas, I don't always feel the most comfortable being the only person in the cemetery. I think they're really, they're intended to be public spaces, that is the point, for a lot of cemeteries. But I still feel that they're such important personal and cultural spaces that it is important for me to be invited in. 
There was only one instance in Singapore where I went to a memorial space alone, and it didn't feel right. I knew that I had friends who had ancestors buried there, but I wasn't with any of those friends. I think it's important to, to be invited. To me, the best feedback I can ever possibly get is hearing from somebody who I interviewed and worked with that they felt accurately represented, that the way I told the story was powerful and moving and relevant to them. There was an instance when I created a, a short audio feature that was featuring the voices of a, a group of artists in Bristol, England. Uh, it's a mid-sized city, like 500,000 people, 90 miles west of London. And at a cemetery there in this basement crypt, every year this group of artists, three from Mexico, one from the UK, and one from the US, come together to make an ofrenda for Dia de Muertos, a shrine to the dead, an altar to the dead. And then the community brings in their own photos and leaves offerings. And it's a really big community event, and it's really powerful. It grows and grows every year. And I produced this audio piece and, you know, I interviewed each of the artists and I had to bring it down to a total of two and a half minutes so everybody had very short features. I remember sending it out to them. It was one of the first pieces I made this year and just thinking, like, please, please, please let this be accurate. And I got really positive feedback, people telling me that they cried when they listened to it. They didn't know that it was going to be that powerful, that emotional. And I remember the first email that I got back from one of the artists, I just fell on my bed and I just sobbed. Like, I was so grateful to be able to do that. to see and visit and hear and feel so many different memorial spaces this year, but one of the ones that's coming to mind immediately when I close my eyes is the multi-sensory experience of going to the columbarium, the building that holds the ashes of the dead during Tomb Sweeping Day Festival within Singapore. It was so busy. It was so lively. Like, everybody was chatting People were on their phones, people were taking photos, there were announcements going on in the background about where you could and could not burn incense because of environmental considerations, how you can access the new eco-friendly burner to burn offerings, and just the heat from the fires and the cool air from the fans, the smells of the food that people were leaving out that their ancestors had loved so much, and just the way it felt so alive. To me, I think we feel so confused at a time of loss because we're not permitted to feel alive. But life goes on even when it changes because of a death.
2233 is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Katie Thornton shared stories from her time as a Fulbright National Geographic Digital Storytelling Fellow in London and Singapore. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233, leave us a nice review while you're at it, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. And check us out on Instagram at 2233stories. Very special thanks to Katie this week for taking the time to tell us her stories. I did the interview and edited this segment. Featured music was Canada Low Res by Pictures of the Floating World, Bloom by Jazar, Chick Sulobe by Poddington Bear, Angel's Garden by Lobo Loco, and Five Songs by Blue Dot Sessions, Delamine, Slimheart, Bliss, A Simple Blur, and Four Point Path. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. <laughs>